I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn turn with me this morning to the book of Amos, chapter 1. Amos, chapter 1. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 970. And before we read from Amos this morning, I want us to begin with uh, an exercise that's going to involve our imagination. So I need you to help me. I need you to try to picture this in your mind. I'm going to give you the details. I'm going to try to paint the picture with words, but I need you to try to uh, imagine this in your mind's eye. So I want you to think about a three-year-old girl named Emma. Her name is Emma. Emma is walking along a path. Um, She's outside. It's a pleasant day. She can feel the warmth of the sun on the back of her neck. She can smell grass and trees, and she hears just this sort of quiet, steady murmuring all around. And then something happens that draws Emma's attention away from the pleasantness of the day and breaks through the murmuring of the outdoor. She hears something. It's a sound that she has heard stories about. It's a sound that she has heard people act out before, but this is the first time she has ever heard this sound with her own ears. And the sound she hears is of a lion roaring. And she can tell by the sound of the roar that the lion must be somewhere nearby. Now, here's the question. In that moment, what kind of emotion does Emma feel? And the way you answer that question depends on the context that you put Emma in. Because I gave you some details, but there was a lot that I left vague. Some of you went to a dark place just a second ago, and some of you might not have been so bad. So let's, let me give you some context. Let's imagine that Emma is with her parents. They're visiting the zoo for the very first time. And the path they're walking on is one of those paved paths that winds from one exhibit to the next. Uh, the murmuring she hears is the sound of other families milling around, talking to one another. If, if that's the context, if the context is a zoo uh, where there are bars and wire and glass between her and the lion that's roaring, then she might feel safe. She might feel excited. Maybe The Lion King is her favorite movie and she just can't wait to see a real live lion for the first time. And if this is her 10th visit to the zoo, she might even feel kind of bored because she thinks, I've, I've seen this before, I've seen it all. No big deal. On the other hand, uh, you could have imagined a totally different context. Let's imagine this time that Emma is not at the zoo. She lives in Kenya, and the path she's walking on is not a paved path that has different exhibits, but it's a a dirt path between two walls of eight-foot-high grass, and the feeling of the warm sun is the same. The smell of the grass and trees is the same, but the murmuring she hears is not the sound of other families at the zoo. It's the sound of the wind rustling through the, the grass and the sound of unseen animals somewhere out there in the brush. And then in that context, the sound of a roaring lion nearby probably is not going to evoke a feeling of safety or excitement or certainly not boredom, but one of fear and soberness that we have to act, and I sure hope my daddy has a plan. Um, This morning we're going to hear Amos begin his ministry by describing the Lord 
as a roaring lion. God describes himself in the Bible in many different ways. Rock, fortress, shield, shepherd, judge, warrior, and the list goes on and on. And here, through the prophet Amos, God likens himself to a lion roaring. Here's the danger for us. The danger is that we would kind of be like Emma visiting the zoo for the tenth time. That we would be bored by that. That we would yawn at that. Maybe literally or at least figuratively. It can be tempting to imagine that the distance of space and time between us here in Henderson, Alabama in 2021 and the people of Amos' generation in the 700s B.C., that that distance of space and time puts a nice, safe barrier between us and this roaring lion so that we experience God as a lion who is tucked safely away in his cage. And I want to warn us not to be lulled into that mistake this morning. So let's read together in Amos chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Israel shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. We're going to pause there and let's ask the Lord to... Help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and we confess that this is indeed your word, breathed out by you, and so it carries with it your power and authority, your trustworthiness. And so we pray, Spirit of God, that you would help us to understand the word that you have inspired, and not only to understand it with our minds, but to feel it in our hearts and that we would seek to obey it in our lives. We know that that's something we can only do with your help. So help us, Lord, to behold your glory and your holiness this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so there's, there's a question, kind of a crucial question that I want us to consider this morning. If, if you were to pick up any... Uh, Old Testament textbook or uh, an Old Testament introduction or even a, a study Bible. And if you were to read through, if you, if you had a study Bible and you were to read through uh, the introduction notes for, for all of the different prophets, the same is true for Paul's letters in the New Testament. There's going to be a few questions that they're going to try to answer to start with. Who wrote the letter or who, who gave the prophecies, that sort of thing. When did it happen? You know, uh, where did it happen? And then one crucial question is, is to whom? To whom was this prophecy directed? To whom was this letter written? And that's the crucial question that I want us to consider this morning is, is the question, to whom? Um, 
to whom was the ministry of Amos directed? It's an important question for us because it helps us to make sense of how we're supposed to read this book. So is this just something that God said to these people some 2,800 years ago in Palestine? Or in what sense can we understand this as being directed to us as well? And to help us get started answering that question, I want us to notice something about the man Amos himself. The book begins with this heading. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So just kind of because I I don't expect you to know where Tekoa is or anything like that, uh, Tekoa was this city in the southern part of Israel about... 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And much like the city of Bethlehem, uh, shepherding was an important business in Tekoa because of its proximity to Jerusalem. So Bethlehem and Tekoa were both close to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is where the temple was. And the temple required a steady supply of sheep for its various sacrificial offerings. And so you had these towns in the vicinity of Jerusalem where sheep were bred and raised, and Amos was a part of that industry. He was among the shepherds of Tekoa. And verse 1 also gives us a sense of of time and place. We're told that Amos ministered in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So he was a contemporary of of Isaiah, which we read from at the beginning, beginning of our service this morning. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah... And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we could try to pinpoint a specific date. You know, what earthquake is he talking about? That sort of thing. That might make for a nice bit of Bible trivia, but that's, we're not here for Bible trivia this morning. Um, what's important to know is that God called Amos to preach during a time when the kingdom had been divided. It had previously been united under Saul and David and Solomon... And then after Solomon died, the kingdom was split in half. Uh, So you had these two distinct kingdoms in existence at the same time with two separate kings and two capital cities. So in the south, you had the kingdom that was called Judah. Its capital was in Jerusalem. And in the north, you had the kingdom that was called Israel, and its capital was in the city of Samaria. So what you need to know is that Amos was from Tekoa, which was in Judah in the southern kingdom. But then look again at verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So Amos was a southerner. And uh, these words are words which he saw concerning concerning Israel. Not Judah, not the place where he was from, but Israel. And so for our purposes this morning, that's what you need to know about Amos, is that he was from the southern kingdom of Judah... But God called him to go and to preach concerning Israel, the northern kingdom. So imagine, imagine a family that has been fractured. They, there's still kind of that sense of relation there, but they, they're not talking to each other. They're, they're not spending Christmas and Thanksgiving together, that sort of thing. When Amos goes from the south to the north to preach to the people of Israel... It might be helpful to think of him as kind of an estranged family member. He's not a complete and total outsider, but he's also definitely not an insider, which raises the question, 
How do you think the people from the northern kingdom would have received this guy coming from, you know, their estranged cousin's side of the family, and he's coming in here and he's going to preach to us? Well, it depends on what he says, right? Uh, in my experience, uh, most people are perfectly comfortable listening to an outsider uh, as long as the outsider says what they want to hear. And in fact, a lot of times there, there are outsiders who can make a good living by going and preaching against other outsiders. And people who are insiders love it because they say, this guy knows. And so as long as Amos preaches about people out there and not people in here, he might find a very receptive audience. There's a saying that you may have heard before. Preachers use this saying sometimes when we're talking to each other. The saying says, a hit dog will holler. Anybody ever heard that before? A hit dog will holler? What that means is every preacher has to learn that lesson eventually. And sometimes you learn it you know, the easy way and sometimes the hard way. But as long as you hit on other people's sins, approval rating is good. But as soon as you start touching on sins that feel close, whoo, people don't like it. And a hit dog will holler. And so it's, it's that whole, you know, as Shakespeare put it, thou doth protest too much, right? If you get real offended by something, then it may be that you got, you got hit on that one. And so a hit dog will holler. So, so as long as you preach against other people's sins out there, high approval rating. But as soon as you point out one of my sins, boy, I'm going to tell you I don't like it, preacher. And so you can imagine something like that happening to Amos. And I want you to see that... We don't know for sure, but I suspect that that's probably what happened in Amos' ministry. So we only read the first five verses because you can, you can get a sense of what Amos did by just looking at these first few verses. Look again at, at verse 3. This is where he starts getting into the specifics of how he's going to go about his, his preaching ministry. He says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now, in Hebrew idiom, uh, the number three is just kind of this typical way of referring to a plurality, a multiplicity of things or people. And so, of course, the people of Damascus had surely committed more than three transgressions more than three kinds of transgressions. He's not just saying these people have only committed four kinds of sin. By saying for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, Amos is using a figure of speech that people would have understood. He's saying the transgressions of these people are beyond a multitude. They are a very sinful people. Now, I'm not going to linger over specifically what Amos condemns about the people of Damascus because... Everything he has to say about them, he's going to say again uh, as we make our way through this book. What I want you to notice right now is that Amos follows a pattern as he preaches here in chapter 1. He says in verse 3, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. So Damascus was this principal city of Syria. And he says they're, they're, they are a sinful people there. Now look down at what he says in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So Gaza was one of the five principal cities of 
the Philistines. So in verses 3 through 5, Amos condemns and promises judgment against the Syrians. Then in verses 6 through 8, he does the same for the Philistines. And on and on the pattern goes as you read through chapter 1 and then the first few verses of chapter 2. He preaches against Tyre and against Edom and against Ammon and against Moab. And each time the pattern is the same. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of blank and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment and so on and so forth. So what Amos is doing is he's drawing a circle, uh, uh, an imaginary circle around Israel and Judah and he's preaching against the sins of all the surrounding nations. And with each one, with each one, he singles out some particularly egregious kind of sin. You know, these people, they, they've sold people into slavery. These people have ripped uh, babies from their mothers. These people have, have mistreated the dead. And on and on he goes. He talks about all these. He picks kind of one, one or two sins for each of these people, and he singles that out. But what he's doing is he's, he's going around, and he's preaching against the sins of all these other people. And there's no way for us to know for certain uh, how the people of Israel received Amos, even though he was a relative outsider. But it's not difficult to imagine that they probably loved this at first. They probably thought, man, this is a guy who, he ain't afraid to say it like it is. He ain't afraid to step on some other people's toes. right? He's calling it like it is. We've never heard somebody be so blunt He's saying everything we want to hear. He's preaching about all the sins of all the nations around them. And so as he's preaching about the sins of Damascus and about those evil Philistines, boy, there's some people in the crowd who are starting to feel like the, the Pharisee in, in Luke 18 who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. They're sitting there listening to Amos preaching. They're saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those evil Philistines. I thank you that I'm not like those people of Damascus and Tyre and Eden, Edom and Ammon and Moab. And he's going on about all those different nations. And there are people in the crowd starting to, they're starting to get kind of worked up. They're starting to say, Amen, Brother Amos. Amen. We like this. We love this. And so then he preaches about all these surrounding nations. And then Amos does something that probably gets them really worked up. Then he starts to preach even against Judah the place where he came from. He's starting to preach against those sort of estranged cousins that we have. So look down at, at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And boy, now there's people starting to raise their hand and they're starting to say, Amen, Brother Amos. Those people from Judah, they are liars. They have rejected the law of the Lord. You are right, Amos. And so the crowd is starting to go nuts. There are people standing up. There are people waving their handkerchiefs. They're walking up and down the aisles. There's people dancing, raising their hands. There are uh, Israelite influencers who they've gotten out their smartphone and they've started to record so they can put a clip of Amos's sermon on Instagram because they say this is going to go viral. There are people who are starting to, to write down quotes and time to birds and send out tweets and all that kind of stuff. And so here's a man who has the courage to say it like it is and to step on people's toes. And he doesn't care who he offends. But the problem is that there's a whole lot more to the book of Amos than just the first chapter and the first five verses of chapter 2 in there. 
Amos does not stop with the surrounding nations or even with Judah. He turns on the crowd and he starts to preach about them. Look down at chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles, handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And just like that, Amos' approval rating takes a big nosedive because he spent a few verses talking about the sins of the Syrians and the Philistines and the people of Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and about the people of Judah. But then he's going to spend pretty much the rest of the book describing the sins of the people of Israel. Again, we're not going to dive deep on precisely what Amos says to Israel in these few verses because everything he says here, he's going to say again and in more detail Later on. So he's going to repeat all of this and we'll have time to, to think about it then. For now, I just want to point out something really foundational about Amos's message, and that is that he's saying God's people are no different than the world around them. He, he points out all the sins of the surrounding nations. And then he says to these people, You are supposed to be the people of God, and yet you have profaned the name of the Lord. Not just by the words you've said, but by the deeds you have done. You have profaned God's holy name. God's people were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be set apart. God called them to be holy as He is holy, and yet they were falling far short of what God had called them to be. And it would be very easy for us to commit the same error that Israel did when Amos started preaching to them. They listened to the words that God sent, and they felt a safe, comfortable distance from them. When they heard Amos describe God in chapter 1, verse 2, like a lion roaring from Jerusalem, well, he was preaching to people who might have been in Samaria or Bethel or somewhere way up north, a long way away from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem seemed like an awful long way away for a lion to be roaring. And so it was easy to think of God as this lion who was safely tucked away in his cage 
or better yet, as a lion who is roaring at everybody else, but not at us. They thought that God's warnings were meant only for other people, not for themselves. And we would be making the exact same mistake this morning if we sat back and said to ourselves, yeah, the people of Israel, they needed to be, they needed to be corrected. They needed God to tell them a thing or two, as if the same were not true of us. In the introduction to his commentary on Amos, one of my favorite writers, Alec Mater, writes that we must banish any thought that Amos speaks primarily to some other people or to other situations and that it is only by some mental gymnastics that there is a message here for the Christian. Amos addressed Israel and we are the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. So I said earlier, the crucial question for us this morning is to whom? And the answer is not just to them, but also to us. This is directed to us. And, and here's the bottom line for us this morning. Outward association without inner transformation is eternally dangerous. Outward association without inner transformation is eternally dangerous dangerous. There were many people in Amos' day who were outwardly associated with the Lord. They said, we're Israelites. Our ancestors were the ones whom God brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I know my great, 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 great grandfather was there at Mount Sinai when Moses came down with those tablets. And of course, he wasn't a part of the whole stone, you know, golden calf thing, you know. So they had this heritage. They were familiar with the law. They knew all the Israelite hymns by heart. They could quote to you the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods but the Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had those things written in their home. They probably had cross-stitch up in their, on their wall with the Shema on it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They had quotations from the Torah around their, around their house. But they didn't have a truly living faith in the Lord. And in a similar way today, there are many who are outwardly associated with the church. If you were to ask them, they could probably tell you where they go to church. In fact, this is just anecdotal, but in, in my years of being here, I have yet to encounter anyone in this county who, if you were to ask them, where do you go to church? that they would say, I don't go to church anywhere. They would say, oh, I go there. I go down there. And the, now if I went and asked somebody at that church whether they go to church there, they might, they might not know. But what they mean is, that's where, my, that's where I grew up. You know, that might be where I go a couple times a year. That's where I got baptized. That's where I got married, whatever the case may be. And so there's, there's lots of people who have that sort of outward cultural association with the church they love the hymns they grew up singing. They can even quote a few verses from memory that they remember from BBS or from RAs or GAs or something like that. But if you were to look at their life, there is very little, if any, evidence that they have a living faith in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is scarce or non-existent. And this position is one of the most dangerous positions to be in precisely because... These are people who think they are in need of nothing. 
There is incredible danger in having an outward association with the Lord and with His people without also having an internal transformation. As Jesus Himself put it in in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so as we make our way through Amos, we're going to find some, some concrete ways for us to examine ourselves and to see whether we truly are in the faith, to see whether there is evidence that we are following the Lord or whether we're just following some figment of our imagination. For now, what I want you to do, and I want to encourage you to do this today, don't delay, don't wait till tomorrow, don't wait till next Sunday, today. As soon as you leave here, don't even wait till after lunch. Do it right as soon as you leave. I want you to spend some time in prayer today. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care how involved you've been, how long you've been outward, outwardly associated with Jesus. I want you, and I'm going to do this too, take some time and, and pray something like this. It doesn't have to be these exact words, but something like this. Lord, I want to follow you, but if, if I have deceived myself into thinking that I'm something that I'm not, would you reveal that to me and help me to surrender fully to you. And I can assure you that God doesn't want you to be deceived. Satan would love it for you to be deceived. He would love it for you to think that just because I prayed some prayer way back then, or I walked an aisle, or I got dunked in that baptistry back there, that I am good. Satan would love for you to be deceived into false assurance by that even though all the evidence points to the contrary. God doesn't want you to be deceived. And so if if we pray that to Him in in true faith, Lord, I want to follow You. I I want to surrender to You. I want to trust in You. But if I have deceived myself into thinking I'm something that I'm not, would You help me to see that and help me to surrender fully to You? That is a prayer that God wants to answer. And that's a prayer that you need to do some business with Him today. And so I want to encourage you to do that, whether you're here in this room or whether you're listening online somehow to do that today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment here. And this is an opportunity for us to respond to God's word. There's always this this delicate balancing act, this tightrope walk, because here's, here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want someone who who should be assured of their salvation, of their faith in Christ, to, to leave here you know, uh, doubting or something like that and to leave here discouraged. At the same time, there could be people, whether it's in this room or somewhere else listening to me right now, who, who should be questioning, who should be asking themselves, doing what Peter urges us to do in 1 Peter to Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. Strive to show that you're saved. And so I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to rob you of genuine assurance, but I also don't want to give you false assurance. And so this is this is work that takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the help of the Holy Spirit to, to pray. Not to take anything for granted, but to spend some time in prayer, to spend some time in God's Word, and to really examine your own heart. And so I want to encourage you to do that today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray uh, with thanksgiving for your Word, how you have spoken it through 
uh, your prophets, and in these last days you have spoken to us in your Son. And Lord, I pray, I pray with genuine earnestness today that every true and sincere believer in Jesus Christ would be assured of their security in you and that they would be encouraged by your unwavering commitment to them. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone who is hearing the sound of my voice right now who has been deceived into some false assurance, I pray that they would feel so afflicted and so insecure until they do business with you and truly surrender themselves to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be deceived into making that same mistake of thinking that just because we are outwardly associated with you or with your people, that we are secure, but that we would be people who have truly called on the name of the Lord, who have truly fled to you for refuge and are walking the narrow way. So, Lord, help us, help us to discern our own hearts today by your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.